It's good to be here with you and to be able to share the Word of God with all of you uh, today. I, I'm going to go off script right away. There you go. Mark told me I could, so I am delighted to have my wife here with me. Uh, after I've been here a couple times, Becky uh, has been unable to come. Uh, we have celebrated 46 and a half years of marriage, which feels, feeds into what I'm about to say, going off script. As, as we were in worship, I had this sense that there were several of you couples that are struggling a little bit. And when you hear something like 46 years, you think, oh my, I don't know that we'll make it another four months or six months. But I felt like I, I, the Lord just wanted me to encourage you. You can do it. You can make it. With God's help, you can make it. There were days then that weren't always easy in our marriage. But we kept putting one foot in front of the other and kept trusting God to be the one that would help us. So for some of you who's, who have suffered the pain of, of divorce and your marriages didn't work out, there's still a God who is a way maker, a miracle worker, a promise keeper. We sang that today. And you see, that's not just good lyrics on the screen that we sing. That's the reality that we can live into in our life, that God is there as way maker, miracle worker, and he's there to help us in every aspect of our life, including our families. If, if God and, and, his, and the church isn't practical, then why would we even pursue this? But he is a relational God, and church is a place and community where we find the help that we need, and that's why we do what we do. So why we come and why we worship. And for those of you that are contemplating marriage, I want to bless you and pray that God gives you a longer marriage than, than what Becky and I have had, uh, you know, and that God will favor you in everything that you do as you move forward. So I just want to bless you. Matter of fact, I'm just going to do that right now. I'm going to bless you. I get to do this because I'm the old guy in the house, you see, so... And there's nothing more important to me other than my walk with Jesus than family. Nothing more important. You're likely going to hear that in my sermon illustrations today. So, Lord, I, I thank you for this beautiful congregation that's gathered here. Lord, I don't know their stories. I'm new. But you know every one of their stories intimately. And you love them unconditionally. And, Father, where there has been difficulty, where we need a miracle, you're a miracle worker where we feel like we've lost our way, you're the way maker. And Lord, when we don't know where to turn and what to turn to, we turn to you. Guide us, Lord. And I pray you would strengthen marriages here. I pray that you would anchor families deeply in the love of God. May we find our source and our resource in you alone. Jesus, we trust you with that in your precious name. Amen. Amen. In the gospel story, Matthew chapter 5 is where we are, and as we go through this series, I believe the Jerry has been walking the church here through the same series they have in Radiant Visalia. So we're going to look at a very familiar passage in Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 to 16. Let me read that passage for you. We call it affectionately the salt and light passage. Verse 13, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It no longer is good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. This is an incredible passage, and it comes right on the heels of, or as part of, I should say, 
Uh, what is the most famous sermon ever given? The Sermon on the Mount follows the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the weak, you know, blessed are the, you know, and so it's this beautiful, incredible passage. And then Jesus quickly turns and he speaks this incredible moment where he talks about being salt and light. Now, who was the audience? Well, it was the believing disciples. In verse 1 of this chapter, we see that he gathered his disciples and great crowds gathered around him and he taught them. So the crowds gathered. There were really, I think, as I look at the crowds, why did they come? What was the point? Why did they come to this desolate place in the wilderness? Well, I think for three reasons. Maybe the same reason why you and I come to gatherings like this. Because of need, because of perhaps curiosity, or perhaps because of profound hope. Need, first of all, they heard that Jesus was a healer. And so maybe they came because they had a physical need, or maybe they had a relational need. Maybe there's a, a, a reason that compelled them to come, because just maybe this one that called Jesus could actually bring healing to their hearts, or to their lives, their physical bodies. Maybe they came out of a sense of curiosity, because they heard that Jesus was a great teacher, and he said exceptional but unexpected things. And maybe, just maybe, they would see a miracle while they were there. Perhaps curiosity brought them. But perhaps the third reason is the one that really impacts me most. Maybe they came because of hope. They had heard through the prophets that this, the Messiah would come and he would be like this and he would be unusual. He'd do signs and wonders. Maybe, just maybe, Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah. Whether they came out of a sense of need or came out of a sense of curiosity or came out of a sense of hope, they came. And there, here they are gathered on the side of the mountain and Jesus is speaking to them. And he's introducing them to this, this thought that they are more than just what they can contribute. You see, here's the point I want to make as we get started today. These people that were gathered, Jesus gave them more than dignity. He gave them more than a sense of, of, of miracles or, or hope or teaching. But he gave them the sense of value and a sense of purpose. Because he said to them, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Jesus spoke to them and said, you are. Now, that, that was earth-shattering. We'll unpackage that in just a minute. Because you see, the religious elite, they had it all. They had the power. They had the prestige. They had the platform. They had this place of, of being in a position of incredible ability to shape the culture. And the common folk, the kind of the common folk that gathered around Jesus on the mountain, well, they were common. And they didn't typically get the kind of storyline that says, you're exceptional. They didn't get the storyline that you have value. They didn't typically get the story that you have incredible significance from the religious leaders. And so Jesus spoke into this cultural dynamic and said, you are the salt of the earth. When we teach this passage, typically as a pastor, and it's, it's one of those passages you kind of hope you don't get the short end of the stick and have to preach on it, you know, because it's so familiar. You're the salt. What do you say that's new and exciting? Well, let me give you... Uh, what we would normally teach. I'm going to give it a quarter-turn spin as we move forward. Well, we often talk about the fact that as believers, we're the salt of the earth, and salt preserves, salt cleanses, salt creates thirst, and salt provides flavor. Those are the four things we typically say. It's all true, and absolutely we need to hear this today, but let me just land very briefly on this and then move on. Salt preserves. In a very arid climate, salt was used to preserve their food. They didn't have refrigeration. In a similar way, as Christians, in the world in which we serve, we actually bring a preservation. It's because of our, our life and our witness that we can actually, can I say, postpone judgment. In a hostile world, 
in a hostile culture, we postpone judgment. How does that happen? By your prayers, by your influence, by your sharing. It, we, we can actually postpone the judgment of God on this culture. That's what we just did for Friday night and Saturday in Visalia. We had California calling. Saints gathered from all over the state to pray for the state of California. And what were we praying for? God, come, bring your, bring your spirit, bring revival, change the culture, change our hearts. Salt postpones judgment. Secondarily, salt cleanses. And in this we see how salt promotes healing. In the medical world, we use saline solutions to cleanse wounds. And in a similar way as believers, we're called to be ministers of reconciliation. What does that mean? It means to put people back on speaking terms together with, to heal relationships. The heart of God is that we would step into this place where love covers over a multitude of sins. So our saltiness as believers should make a difference in our relationships around us. It should bring healing. And then thirdly, we see the salt creates thirst. It provides a sense of, can I say, curiosity. People should say to us, there's something different about you. What is it? Curiosity. And that curiosity should give us opportunity to talk to people about Jesus. Salt provides curiosity. And then fourthly, salt provides flavor. Aren't you glad? I'm a salty kind of guy. Uh, you know. I'm the guy that goes to In-N-Out Burger and gets the fries and adds extra salt to the fries. Okay. Anybody else here? Yeah, okay. And my wife looks at me and says, you're not going to do that, are you? And I said, not if you're looking. I'm not going to do it. Anyway. But salt adds flavor. And, and, and I think that, that we should, <laughs> that as Christians, we should add flavor to the world around us. We should be joy-filled people. Hey, what about the jack-o'-lantern jubilee? I had the time of my life. I was at the bottom. My wife and I, for a while, manned uh, one of those bouncy houses, and I was at the bottom of the slide. And I had, the, I had delight last night just watching the smiles of those kids' faces and giving high five to the older kids. And, and these little guys that went up and down and up and down and up and down. I've been one little kid at, at least 50 times. And matter of fact, he, kinda, he got to the bottom of the slide. He laid there on his back like this. <laughs> He was dressed in kind of like a, like a dinosaur uh, outfit that was like a woolly, kind of fleecy kind of thing. And he was lying there exhausted. I kind of grabbed him because somebody else was coming out. And I, I was playfully kind of moving. And he was sweated wet all the way through. And by golly, I said, are you tired? He said, no. And he was gone again, you know. We add flavor to the world around us. We should be joy-filled, salty kind of believers that make a difference. But salt, let me step forward now in my teaching, had a significant place in Asian culture. In addition to the things I've just said, salt actually provided some incredible additional things. It was used ceremonially in covenant, the creation of covenant, without going into detail. As, as they inked the deal, so to speak, and the covenant was created, they would exchange salt. So salt had great value, and it was highly esteemed because of a ceremonial aspect. Additionally, salt was used in barter and trade. And they would actually use salt, and it became the standard by which you would, you would evaluate other things. Like an ounce of salt would be worth 20 pounds of figs or whatever. You know, so salt was a common, it was the gold standard of the time. Salt was like the gold standard. But then thirdly, salt was actually used as currency. The Romans would actually pay their soldiers at times, not in coins, but in salt. Interestingly enough, the Latin word for salt is S-A-L, sal, from which we get the English word salary, salary. How would you like to be paid in salt, by the way? Salary. 
Think about it. And so salt had incredible value in the ancient world as a currency. And perhaps you've heard the, that old cliche, the cultural cliche, they're worth their weight in salt. Have you heard that? Or is that just an old person's comment? Anyone on the age of 40, you've never heard this before. Okay, I was afraid of that. Ruins my illustration completely. But, there, but for those of you, back in the old days when we used pen and paper, there was, there was this phrase, you're worth your weight in salt, which meant, again, that you had incredible value or, or that person that you were referring to was a very skilled, very highly valued employee or friend, worth their weight in salt. Think about that for a second. Jesus tells us that we are the salt of the earth, indicating that we add value to the world around us. It's the intention of God that we add value wherever we are, if in the marketplace, in the school where we work, at Jack-O-Lantern Jubilee, wherever we are as believers, we should add value to that place. Worth our weight in salt, that we are salty kind of people, that Jesus would, would allow us to step into this place of being like him in everything that we do. My, uh, my dad used to have a, a phrase. He would say, oh, he said, he's, he's a salty kind of a guy. He's a salt of the earth kind of guy, salt of the earth kind of a gal. And he'd make those, those conversations. And he, would, he would use that to reference people who lived their life on the basis of what I would call biblical wisdom. You know, they, were, they weren't just good all-around folk, but they had value and virtue, and they lived their lives with an other-centeredness that made them mm, like people. They were just, they added flavor to life. They were worth their weight in salt. They were salty kind of people. But let me be clear here for a second. Jesus did not say, you are salty kind of people. He didn't say to be salty. He said, you are salt. He, let, me, let me drill down and go a little deeper. What's the distinction here? You see, because I think in some time, at times when we preach this sermon, we can talk about better performance, how you can maybe share your faith better. And those are all good applications. But what Jesus was going after was identity here. He didn't say, you are salty. He said, you are salt. And let me see if I can define that in a way. Uh, my last name is Whitmer, and I grew up in a family, a Swiss-German family, hard work ethic, all that stuff, you know. And my grandfather set the stage for the whole family. And he would say to us, as all these little grandchildren would be milling around, and we, every Sunday afternoon was Sunday afternoon at Grandpa's house, and the boys, those of us boys, grandchildren, could be a little rowdy at times. And my grandfather would come out of the house when the noise level got to about 1,000 decibels. And he would say, boys, boys, come here, come here, come here. And then he would look at us and say, Whitmer boys, Whitmer boys are hard workers. Whitmer boys are dependable. Whitmer boys treat others with kindness. Whitmer boys are. And he would set the standard for who we are. He established the sense of Whitmer identity. And when Jesus said to us as believers, you are salt, he was establishing our identity, he gave us a sense of purpose, higher than just go and perform Christian activities. He was saying to us, as the train goes by, he was saying to us that we have value and identity because we're sons and daughters of the King of Kings, that the saltiest person on the, uh, in the universe is our Heavenly Father, and he wants us to be like him. There's an invitation to demonstrate family, the, the family of God, the kingdom of God. We are ambassadors. We are 
sons and daughters of the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords. So if we are sons and daughters of the King, what does that make us? Well, I mean, princes, princesses. And we get to live into that family identity. I'm fully aware of the fact that it, I'm, never, I'm not royalty, so I don't know how this works exactly. I imagine from what I've read that if you are a prince and you grew up in a, in a royal family, that you're trained differently. You know, you, you, maybe you don't use your napkin just like that. There's a special way to do it. And you use a certain fork at the right time. I don't know how that works, but in the family of God, as kingdom royalty, that we're called to an identity that's different than the, it, we're called to be different. Did I say that? But it's not because we're performing, and, and no one's going to guilt trip you into this performance. It's just because of who you are, your royalty, identity. You are the salt of the earth, and God wants us to, God wants us to understand that. In the ancient world, in Israel, salt came from two primary sources. The one source was, uh, it was the salt that they would scrape off the rocks around the Dead Sea or the Mediterranean Sea. It was deposited there by evaporation. Salty water evaporated, and they would scrape the salt off the rocks. That was the inferior salt. It was still salty, but it wasn't high quality. The second form of salt was the salt that they would mine from the hills. It was a hard rock salt. That was the best quality salt. Here's my point in application for, for this, is that we, you and I, our life, our witness, our devotion to God must not be what's left over after the heat of the day. It must not be what we scrape out in our, and scraping by in our lives. That's not what God has called us to as salty believers. But we're called to be that hard rock kind of salt. And scholars believe when Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth, he was pointing to the Judean hills where they would actually mine the salt out of the hills. You are the salt of the earth. That's the key part there, out of the earth. And that Jesus was referring to the fact that this was the best kind of salt. But it comes with extreme effort. You have to take a shovel and a pickaxe. You know, you have to go and, and mine this stuff. Christian character, depth of character, doesn't come by the leftovers of our life, folks. It doesn't. You know, maybe if there's an application Steve needs to hear today, is that... The depth of character, being truly salty, high-quality Christian example and witness comes because I dig deep in my relationship with Jesus. Here's the primary point for this section of the message. You've got to dig deep. You've got to do the hard work. You've got to spend time in his presence. If you want to be like high-quality salt, you know, the rock salt, as it were, then lean into your time with God, making sure that, that we are all in as Christ followers, developing the character and the behavior of Jesus himself, digging deep into Christ. Have you ever been around a truly salty believer? You know, the kind of person that when you come into their presence, you know they've been, they walk with God, and you wonder if they actually sleep at night, if they pray all night. One of those kind of people, you know. Well, my, my mother was a very salty person, and people, when I... When people get into her presence, or you get in the presence of a salty person, you stand a little straighter, maybe you adjust what you say, maybe your attitude gets a little adjustment because you, you, know, you want to make sure that you impress that salty person. My mom was like that. She, she had this profound love for God. And when you were in her presence, you just wanted to be like her. You just wanted to love Jesus like she loved Jesus. If I can give you a snapshot, two snapshots of my mom, 
when I was a child growing up, I, I remember profoundly, and my mom would walk around the house and she would sing these, can I say old hymns? They were old to me when I was a kid. But uh, there was this one hymn that she was singing and tears would run down her cheeks and quietly, and it was, I come to the garden alone. Anybody know that one? When the dew was still on the roses. And then it, it, and it goes on and talks about that in the chorus, and he walks with me and he talks with me and he tells me I am his own. And the joy we share as we tarry there, none other has ever known. And I remember thinking as this little kid, like, I don't know what she has. I don't know exactly how her relationship with God is, is so deep and defined and, and devoted, but I want a relationship with Jesus like that. It just made me thirsty to know God more. That was my mom. My mom was also a prayer warrior. And so her prayer time was mid-afternoon when all the little ones, I'm the oldest of six, the little ones would be down for their afternoon nap. And mom would be on her knees by her bedside out loud praying for every one of us by name. She'd go down the list. And it was crazy because I'd come in from school and I could hear mom praying in the bedroom. And she prayed fairly loudly. She was a gentle person. But when she prayed, she became a lion in the prayer room. And so she'd be praying out loud, oh, God, for Steve, I just pray that he would fulfill the call in his life. I pray, Lord, you keep him away from temptation. Oh, God, you know, those kind of prayers. Those, you know, God... The effectual fervent prayers of righteous mother avails much, I think. It's, um, but my younger brother, knowing mom's style of praying with great precision, great you know, clarity and accuracy, he would not bring friends home after school. He was terrified what mom might be praying out loud for him. Uh, but... It made us want to love Jesus like my mom loved Jesus. She was the salt of the earth. And so are you. You are the salt. You're the salt of the earth. And this passage goes on to say, if salt loses its, its flavor, its savor, it's not good for anything except be trampled underfoot by men. And uh, man, I, I don't know how to define this, but you know what I'm talking about. It's where our words in our life just don't match. You know what I'm talking about. That's where, where we lose our saltiness in, our, in the culture. And the Word of God makes it very, very clear to us that, that salt then has no value. It's how do we lose our saltiness? Well, another whole sermon, but let me give you three things quickly. First of all, I think we can lose our saltiness if we simply take chances with sin. You know, we know we shouldn't do it, but we just take chances. And if I don't get caught, it must be good. You know, it's okay. If I don't get caught and get away with it, well, it's wonderful. And you take chances with sin, you lose your saltiness. Especially if you have the Christian, Christian bumper sticker on the back of your car. You know what I'm talking about? Or secondarily, we can lose our saltiness if we actually choose to disobey. Or as we said to our kids when they were young, and the Holy Spirit reminds me that I used to put this condition on my kids, delayed obedience is disobedience. And Jesus says, remember what you used to tell your kids? Yeah, I hold you accountable to the same standards, Steve. Delayed obedience. It's like, yes, God, I know, but not now. Delayed obedience is disobedience. We lose our saltiness. And then thirdly, I think that we can lose our saltiness when we make Jesus an accessory to our life rather than the essence of our life. We fit him into the corners where he fits. But really... There was an old song, of course, many of us would know. It went something like this. Jesus is the Lord of all. Jesus is the Lord of all. Then it went on to say, but Jesus, if he's not the Lord of all, then he's not Lord at all. And I think that's where we're fitting here. Jesus needs to be more than an accessory. He needs to be the essence of our life. And what happens if, if Jesus 
is not the essence of our life. We become unsavory. We become unsalty. And the Bible says we're trampled underfoot by men. You know what I'm talking about. This has been a terrible couple years in the church, hasn't it? It's in the, the media has had a heyday with high-level leaders who have fallen into, fallen, uh, into sin and fallen into cultural disgrace, and they've ended up in the media headlines, uh, coffee shop talk, and they have become an example of how not to live your life. That breaks my heart. Trampled underfoot in the media. Trampled underfoot by men, the scripture says. That's not what God wants. Obviously, it brings shame on those individuals because they've lived saltless, tasteless lives. But we have to also realize that we are a projection of the King of all kings and Lord of all lords, our Father. We represent his kingdom as well, don't we? So Lord, help us to live our lives in a way that brings glory and fame and honor to the Lord. You are salt. Let me remind you of who you are. You are salt. Keep digging. Keep leaning into your relationship with Jesus. And do I have to remind you, believer, that you live in a fishbowl? My dad used to say this. Uh, my dad has some great points of wisdom. He says, son, I was a young guy, maybe 10 or 11 years old. He said, if you want to know how a Christian should live, ask a non-believer. You see, we have standards for our politicians, don't we? And when they fail, we vote them out of office. We have standards for our bankers, and our, we expect them to live and to handle our money with the highest level of integrity. And the world also has a standard for Christians. They may not live it themselves, but they expect it of us. Why? Because you're royalty. It's not, don't think it's unfair. Uh, we have privileges as sons and daughters of the king that's a, that more than compensate for this. And we need to live into the call of us on our life. And then it goes on. Hmm. As followers of Jesus, we need to step into this next portion of the scripture. You're the light of the world. And Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Do you see the invitation of Jesus? He says, I'm the light of the world. Then he turns and says, you are the light of the world. You see, light, in the intention of light is that it gives guidance. It gives, uh, it points the way. It demonstrates the way to or the way from. I, my, in my point, I don't have a flashlight. I forgot to bring it with me. But in the car, I found this emergency light. So we're going to try to make this work as an illustration. I tried. Okay, guys. But the point of light and having a flashlight is to guide the way and point the way. And can I just make the bottom line here? To Jesus. That's the role of our Christian lives and our Christian witness is not to say, look at me, how wonderful I am, but to, to point the way. I think that in 20, well, 2019 to 2021, what a lot of Christians have been doing is they've been taking the, the light and they've been doing this. They've been shining in people's eyes. And rather than point the way to Jesus... We have allowed our opinions, our, our attitudes, our ideas to actually blind people to the beautiful love of Jesus. Folks, we are the light of the world, but we're not called to shine the light in people's eyes. We're called to shine it on their path to lead them to Jesus. Nor are we called to pour, pour salt into open wounds. If you didn't live your life like that, then you would be, yeah, you know, don't do it. Don't shine light in people's eyes and don't pour salt in people's open wounds. This be, this be an example of who Jesus is in very practical ways. We're called to illuminate the way you are. You are the salt. You see, you're more than your words, more than your opinions, more than your ideas. 
There's form for those things. But man, when we're living our lives out in front of, the, of, of unbelievers, man, we're, we're, we need to forget the stuff. Step aside from the argumentation and lead people to Jesus. That's the point. That's why we're here. We're sons and daughters. Don't get caught up in petty things because people are watching us all the time. Uh, perhaps you've heard the poem by Edward Guest. It starts with this line, I'd rather see a sermon than hear one any day. Or maybe you could finish this quote by, that was attributed to St. Francis of Assisi. Preach the gospel always, and if necessary, use words. Or how about this common quote in our culture? Actions speak louder than... Some years ago, I was at a checkout of a grocery store. I bought some items, and I, you know, I gathered my bag, and the, the gal at the till uh, at checkout there gave me my change back. And as I, as I stepped away with my bag, I thought, something's wrong here. She gave me too much money. I looked at my receipt, and she gave me five bucks too much back. And as I stood there thinking, what should I do? Be I, only because she had already started to check somebody else through. Okay, it was a busy store. They were busy. I'm thinking, do I, do I take the five bucks and say, praise God, you know, bodas? I didn't. Or do I pause there and wait while she checks this other person's groceries through, which was a large order, as I remember. I stood there, and I waited. And finally, when she finished, before she moved on to the next customer, I said, excuse me, ma'am, you gave me too much change back. I think you gave me $5 too much. And she looked at me, said, I know, Pastor Steve. I've been coming to your church for a few weeks, I just wanted to see if you really were a man of integrity. I wouldn't take that five bucks back, you know. <laughs> no, that's not true. But see, we're always being watched. And you don't know who's watching. And you don't know whether we're being tested by people that want to know whether you are really salt and really light. And here's the thing, you know, we're always being watched. There's lots of little eyes here, by the way. Kids are great, great perceptives. They, they pick up on stuff. I could tell stories about this. I won't do it because of time here, but my grandchildren are great sources of illustrations for me. But they're all, they, they pick up. They can walk into a room and they can sense if there's tension in the room. You know what I'm talking about. They know. They're great perceptives, but they're lousy interpreters, which means they may... Some of you might be these kind of, you grew up in families where there's a lot of tension in the home and your family of origin. And somewhere around 25 or 30, you, the, the brain switches and you think, maybe if I had been a better kid, my parents would not have gotten that divorce. Great perceptors, lousy interpreters. Folks, salt and light, even within our own home. We're going to move on to that, that point in the scripture here, actually, that we're called, how are we doing here? Okay, we're called to be salt and called to be light. It's interesting that the Apostle Paul states it really well in Titus chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. Uh, maybe for the sake of time, I won't read it, but what the Apostle does is he speaks to four groups of people, actually five. He says, he teaches very practically, older men, this is how you should live your life. Younger men, live your life like this. And godly, as a godly, older women, live your life in this kind of way. Younger women, Live your, read it. It's fantastic biblical instruction on how to be salty. 
in the world in which we live. Great instruction. But it's not only about performance because the apostle, Paul, speaking to Titus, who was leading a church in this island called Crete that was known for his kind of lawlessness. Uh, matter of fact, their own poets called them lazy and undisciplined drunkards. That's how they defined the culture. And in that, the Apostle Paul says, you need to live differently because you are salt and light within this culture. Live differently. Older men, younger men, older women, younger women. And then he even speaks to slaves, which employees our culture. He says, this is how you live. But why? He gives us in, in that 10 short verses, he says in verse 5, so that no one will malign the word of God. In verse 8, he says, so that, there, that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about you. And in verse 10, it says, so that we can make the teaching about our Lord Jesus Christ attractive. It's about, it's not just about having this moral whatever, but it's about the awareness that we live in a world that looks at us all the time. We want to be people that reflect well who Jesus is in very practical ways. A few weeks ago, uh, before we came back down here to California for the winter, I was up in northern British Columbia, and I, I had my truck, my 4x4, and I was off-road. I was on a gravel road. It was muddy. The rain had come, and it was, I was driving, and I was hitting these mud puddles. And, and it was end of day, and the sun had gone down. It was getting quite dark, and I suddenly realized I can't see the road very well. So I pulled over, and I get out, and I realized the sides of my truck were just encased with mud. They splashed up and stuck to the side of my truck. I walk around to the front of my truck, and my headlights were covered with at least a quarter inch of mud, completely obscuring the light. I mean, the light was shining, but it wasn't doing a bit of good. Headlights were on, nobody was home, kind of a thing, you know? And so I got out, I had a water bottle, and I splashed water on the headlights, I wiped them off with paper towel, and I got back in my truck. It was amazing how well I could see the road at that point in time. We walk through life. Have you hit a few mud puddles this week? Get anything stick to you? You know, they just, yeah, you know. Maybe once in a while we need to step back and let the word of God wash us. Titus chapter 2 gives us illustration of how to do that. You know, this is how I want you to live your life, son. Let the word of God wash over us, cleanse the lens of our life so the light of Jesus can shine more perfectly through us. That's what we're called to. And, you know, life happens. Mud happens. Crud happens. It splashes and it sticks sometimes. And you have to go, Jesus, I just need you. I need you to help me right now because I do not feel very loving in this moment of time. No one else besides Steve ever has those moments, right? That's where we pull over to the side of the road, catch, catch your breath, and say, Jesus, I need your help. Wash my heart. Cleanse the lens of my life so that we can be a, a, a great example, a reflection of who you are. But then let me give you a little side point. This is in verse 15, Matthew chapter 5. The scripture says, you are the light of the world. No one takes a light and puts a cover over it. But rather they put it up on a lampstand, the scripture says. So that it gives light to the whole house. It gives light to the whole house. A little sub point, but an important point for all of us that have kids, families, the best place and the most important place to let our light shine is at home, folks. It's at home. It's because in that context there, at home, that it's the most powerful. Oh, my goodness, I could tell you stories all day long about this. I am not going to do that. Except to simply say that you can fake it here on Sunday morning. I can fake it. 
you know, I can put on, you know, you guys might think I'm a pretty good guy or a terrible guy. It does, but really the truth is, if you want to know what kind of a guy Steve is, call his kids. Talk to my grandkids. I have five grandkids, 13 to 22. Because I made a decision to let my light shine, not only before men, but to let it shine in the house. So my, my admonition is, man, make Jesus in your home a priority. However you do that, that's another sermon series, Jared, for another day. But make him, make, make him a priority. And then as I begin to, to ramp down, come to a conclusion here, uh, in this text, you are the light of the world. Let your light shine before men. They may see your good works and give praise or glory to your Father who is in heaven. You see, who we are, uh, we call that holiness, who we're called to be. We're called to be like Jesus. But what we do that flows out of who we are as, as sons and daughters of the King, that's often called righteousness. Righteousness is holiness in action. Righteousness is, those, is how we display to the world who we truly are. It's uh, if, if you've ever been to Israel, uh, my wife and I have had the privilege of going several times leading teams. You go to the Yad Vashem, the Holocaust Museum. It is a moving, tragic, emotional place to go. But as you park and you walk up toward the museum, you walk on what is called the Avenue of the Righteous. On both sides of this walkway are trees that were planted. Uh, every one of them has a, brace, a brass nameplate at the bottom commemorating or reminding us of someone, a Gentile, a righteous Gentile who hid the Jews during the Holocaust, or preserved the Jews. Avenue of the Righteous. Our guide told me uh, one of our trips, he said they call it the Avenue of the Righteous because in kind of orthodox Jewish thinking, that righteousness is what you do. Or he said, he put it this way, righteousness, true righteousness, is when you sacrifice yourself to benefit someone else. So all these, Corey Ten Boom, you've heard of Hiding Place? Corey Ten Boom has a tree there with a nameplate at the bottom of it. There are hundreds of these trees that were there to dedicate or to commemorate what they call righteous Gentiles. Now, you may not have a tree with your nameplate at the base of it, but there are people that are watching you. And we have the opportunity to live our lives in such a way that we can be righteous, salt and light in this world. So when the community looks at us, they should be able to say, there's something different about you guys. When I look at Radiant and the Radiant Churches, both in Visalia and here in Tulare, it's easy for me to see righteous activity here. I, I see the motel ministry and the, the pancake breakfast. I, I see um, house building in Mexico for families in, in, in need. I see collections being taken to feed the folks in India during the COVID crisis. I see incredible, I saw jack-o'-lantern jubilee. I see righteous activity. Everywhere that I look. And if I can just land the plane. Don't just do righteous acts, but include your kids. For those of you that have kids, let them catch you in moments of greatness. True biblical greatness. Let your kids see it. Take them along. Even if it'd be easier to do it by yourself. You know what I'm talking about? I'm going to tell you a story that I'm going to close. This is not in my notes. But I remember... I remember uh, for a number of years when we pastored here in California, our kids were younger, and we decided we wanted to find a practical way to bless families and to model generosity to our kids. So we decided we'd pick a family in the neighborhood that was kind of, kind of down and out. They were in a difficult season. And all through kind of the, the months leading up to Christmas, if, if there were canned items on sale, we'd buy two, one for our pantry and one for the giveaway box. 
And by Christmas time, we had a couple boxes of groceries, and then we'd throw sometimes some toys in for the kids. We picked a family. We kept it a kind of a secret. This was, this was completely um, secretive. No one knew except our family what we were doing. We built the excitement toward the day. And then a couple days before Christmas, we would, uh, after dark, we'd park the minivan, minivans in those days, we'd park the minivan around the corner, and then everybody would get out, and we'd try to go so quietly. Of course, teen, young girls, giggly young girls. I'm not sure how quiet we were. But anyway, we'd take these boxes, and we would quietly go and drop them on the front porch. And all the rest of us would, would vacate except the fastest, the fleetest of foot, usually the youngest one, who was left to do the ding-dong drop thing, you know. They ring the doorbell, and they go, running, and then we jump in the car and take off. But it was this most amazing experience where we had the opportunity to be salt and light, but they didn't know who we were, but they knew that Jesus loved them. I mean, for a family, it was going through tough times at Christmas, but what it did to my kids, righteous acts in front of my family, oh my, light shining in my household. We've done this several times now with our grandkids, because they heard, we want to do it too. And I would suggest you find things like that that are, that are crazy, silly, wonderful, ridiculous, but fun. Build a culture of generosity. Let your light shine in the house for your family. Why? Well, it's important to be salt and light because, first of all, it makes a difference at home. We're forming the young life. Secondarily, we are called to be salt and light because it makes a difference in our community. We saw that last night. I don't have to convince you of that. We can shine the light on the pathway to lead people to Jesus. We can be salt and light, and it's important because... It shapes heaven. The Bible says that if we do these righteous acts in front of men, our Heavenly Father receives praise. And that's why we do it ultimately anyway. And lastly, it's important because there's a world full of men and women out there who really need, who really need to find their way home. Prodigals and people that desperately need to be in a family of love and acceptance they need to meet their father, and they need to be part of the family. Folks, you are salt. Not just called to be salty. You are light. Matter of fact, would you just do something for me as I close? We just turn to someone and say, you're salt, you're light. Just tell them that. Okay, thank you. So, Heavenly Father, thank you. Heavenly Father, thank you that um, you've invited us into this incredible family business. <laughs> that, and Lord, we, we want to dig deep in our relationship with you so that we can be the highest quality salt possible. Lord, we don't want to just give you the scrapings of our life. And also, Lord, I pray that you would clean the lens of our lives so that people can see Jesus most clearly through us. And Lord, I pray you would remind us on a daily basis that we do live as Christians in a fishbowl and that we're called to demonstrate you, and that we are always on display. But why we do this? Why? At the end of the day, Lord, it's really because of you. You're the king, and we want to bring glory and fame to our Father, and so that men would see our good deeds and give praise to our Father who is in heaven. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.